You're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and this week we're starting a new series called The Biblical Origin of Humanity. And uh, I've titled this episode, Is Adam the Real Deal? Is Adam the Real Deal? And it's our introduction to the biblical origin of humanity. Um, there are many questions these days about our origins. And what's really interesting is the battle anymore is not, um, well, it is, of course, between us and uh, the world of secular, humanistic, naturalistic uh, evolution. Okay, we, we certainly fight that on a daily basis. We fight that battle. Um, but what's really interesting is some of these ideas have really started permeating their way into the church. And some uh, churches ask, you know, some, some churches adopt certain aspects of it. Um, some go full-blown. I mean, there are some churches who would go so far as to say uh, that uh, the Bible is not inerrant, that the Bible um, does have problems, that the Bible cannot be trusted on what it says about origins, about science, about any of those things, um, and that really the only part of the Bible that we have to believe is um, that Jesus rose from the dead. And I certainly respect that from a salvation perspective. I understand that we're talking about Jesus rising from the dead. Uh, as uh, Lee Strobel puts it, that's the ball game. All right, I get that. I, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. But what's interesting is when you look at the Bible and what Jesus said, Jesus seems to explicitly affirm some of these things that um, some of this new wave of evangelicalism would like to deny. So the question then becomes, uh, do we then take everything Jesus said seriously, or do we discredit that as well, because it doesn't seem... Um, believable to us in light of what we're taught by the rest of our culture. And so I think that's uh, the problem. And at the heart of it, at the heart of it, that is what this book that we are going to be using to go through this series addresses. Now, we're going to be using a book called Searching for Adam, Genesis and the Truth About Man's Origin. Searching for Adam, Genesis and the Truth About Man's Origin. It is edited by Dr. Terry Mortensen, um, and it is a great, great book that I thoroughly have enjoyed reading. Um, each chapter is done by somebody different. There's one or two chapters that are uh, a repeat author, but for the most part, they're done by somebody different um, and uh, somebody who is an expert in their particular field, and they have submitted a chapter uh, to this work. And, and here in a few minutes, we're going to go over what those chapters uh, are so you can kind of get a good overview of the series. Uh, whenever I start a series out like this, I always like to try to give a good uh, introductory episode, uh, just number one, so you kind of know what to be expecting for the next few weeks, uh, but then also so, especially if we're using a book like this, you can go ahead and uh, purchase the book and um, 
and get it so you can follow along with us if you want to. Now, I believe right now, especially on Kindle, um, I believe you can get this book for like $5.99. It's, it's a pretty good deal. So I would go out there and get it. Again, it's called Searching for Adam, Genesis and the Truth About Man's Origin. But uh, remember, like I said, this book, um, it, it's not specifically to address the rest of the church. I didn't necessarily mean that. However, it does spend quite a bit of time throughout its pages um, working through some of the issues that um, this, this new evangelicalism has has brought along with it in terms of accepting things like theistic evolution uh, into the church. I would even go so far, and the book would even go so far, as to um, accepting things like Big Bang and the millions of years into uh, the church. Dr. Mortensen sees this as a uh, problem. Obviously, as young earth creationists, we see this as a problem, though this is a debate that is an in-house debate, and we must handle this um, respectfully. If you go on uh, the blog, uh, this week's blog post was how we handle in-house debates, um, and it kind of some thoughts on that, four ways that we can handle them very, very respectively, and uh, respectfully, excuse me, and, and I believe we should do that, and we absolutely should. Um, however, that does not mean that we don't stand up for truth when we believe it, and we think we have good reasons for it. If we don't have good reasons for it, then we, we need not stand up for it, uh, but you know, if we do, then we need to go ahead and do it. And in that uh, blog post, I, I, I gave you four areas. Um, we need to have, uh, see if I can remember them, um, I think I just said we need to have a, an attitude of grace, which is very true. Um, anytime we approach these uh, situations, we need to have an attitude of grace. Jesus always knew he was right. I think we can all agree um, at least most of us, uh, that Jesus never spoke an inaccurate or a wrong word. Uh, he is God after all, all right? And so Jesus always had an attitude of grace, even though he was right all the time, all right? Now, the other thing, when we go into it, of course, we're human, so we uh, need to have a willingness to change. We need to understand that we not uh, we might not be uh, right about things all the time. Um, now, I, I really appreciate something Um Answers in Genesis, the, their two, uh, 2018 theme coming up for this new, new, new year is um, returning to the clarity of the Bible, I believe, something like that. And I'm really, uh, I'm really looking forward to that. I'm interested in that because it, it kind of was sprung from this uh, debate that many of you may have seen between, um, between Mr. Ham and uh, Dr. Richard Howe over there at Southern Evangelical Seminary. Uh, in Charlotte, and of course they debated on presuppositional apologetics versus um, versus classical apologetics. But uh, that aside, um, what uh, prompted the um, new series for um, Answers in Genesis next year ca came from that debate, returning to the clarity of the Bible. And so uh, their theme next year is going to kind of be to show how the Bible is clear when it says that uh, the world was created in about six days, over 6,000 years ago. And so I'm interested in that. Um, so anyway, uh, the point is, though, that when we approach a situation, we need to have a willingness to change, okay? Um, we uh, we just might not be right about everything we think, okay? Have we, have we ever considered that? Now, there's some things I believe that uh, we don't ever need to change. We need to absolutely stand on. Um, but some areas we can admit where we might have gone wrong in the past, okay? Now, that brings me to the third one that I wrote, which was the courage to stand. The courage to stand. Um, you know, you do not have to believe things that 
um, other people believe. And um, maybe to say that a little bit differently, um, you are not always going to believe the way that other people believe. In other words, it doesn't matter what you believe, you are always going to have those who disagree with you. Um, and so you need to be willing to accept that. But you also, if you're going to engage in an in-house debate with somebody, if you're going to take somebody on in a... Um, a particular position that is within the bounds of Christian, you know, orthodoxy, um, then we need to have the courage to stand on what we believe, even though somebody else may agree, and even if they have good reasons for the disagreement. Um, there's a, a buddy of mine who actually mentioned in that post, and um, we disagree on the age of the earth. I mean, flat out, we disagree with it. Um, but respectfully, and out of respect for him, um, I'm not just going to call him a compromiser and tell him that he's got, you know, problems in his theology and this, that, and the other thing. Um, the guy really loves the Lord. I mean, he does. He loves the Lord. Um, and he and I have some serious disagreements um, about a few things. But, but you know, specifically in this context, the age of the earth, we, we have some disagreements on. And um, the thing about it is, though, um, though we disagree and though I have approached it with a willingness to change, I also have the courage to stand on what I know I believe the Bible says to be true about it. And I can defend my position on that um, pretty well, I think. And so um, that's the other thing about that. If you're going to have the courage to stand, you had better... Um, be prepared. You had better know how to stand on that. Otherwise, just don't get involved with it. Because um, conversations where you know you come to the table uh, disarmed, right? You don't have all of the facts, or you don't have enough information to present a good case. Um, in those situations, you're going to end up with a terrible outcome in the debate because all you're going to be able to resort to is discrediting the other person, and that usually ends up in ad hominem personal attacks and just all kinds of bad things. So, um, an attitude of grace. Um, the willingness to change, have the courage to stand, and then finally, a call to intellectual honesty. And we're going to actually talk about that a little bit this morning as well. But a call to intellectual honesty. Um, be willing, be willing to admit um, not only that you could be wrong, but be willing to admit where the shortcomings are in what you believe. Be willing to admit where the shortcomings are in what you believe. No position that anybody takes on anything is perfect, all right? It, it just doesn't exist. Uh, there's only one perfect person that ever lived, and that was Jesus Christ, all right? He's the only person to walk on this earth uh, who was ever perfect. That's just the bottom line. And so he had perfect beliefs. Trust me. I guarantee it. He had perfect beliefs. Uh, but other than him, none of us do. None of us do. We don't have perfect beliefs. There's something wrong with every one of us. Uh, every, you know, just to bring it home into this problem. Let's just look at the age of the earth debate. If you're a big banger, you've got a horizon problem. You've got a problem where you can't get light all the way across the universe because the cosmic background radiation and everything is really even and everything, but on the big bang model... It shouldn't be, all right? Well, if you're a young earther, um, then you've got this problem as well uh, because we say everything was created 6,000 years ago, but stars are billions of years light years away. Um, so how do we reconcile that? Well, of course, I'm fully aware, okay, of the, of, the, of the responses and the models on both sides which account for those things. I'm not saying that there's not an answer, but I am saying that there is a problem, and in this particular issue, uh, both sides have a problem. So uh, this is just a really good example of one of those things where we need to be intellectually honest about it and say, look, we don't have a perfect answer, uh, but we're working on it. We're working on it, and here's what we got so far. Um, 
What do you think? And I do happen to think there are some good answers to those issues, but um, uh, those are for another time. So uh, when you're engaging in in-house debates, and the reason I prefaced it with that is because um, this um, particular book does deal a lot uh, with addressing the positions of others in the church, and we need to be careful how we go about that. Now, uh, and, and I'm just going to be honest with you, there are some times where this book uses stronger language um, towards some of those people than I would have uh, used myself, and other areas where I might have even used stronger language, okay? So, I mean, I'm, uh, again, nothing is perfect. This book is not perfect just because we're using it. Uh, we might have disagreements with it. Um, I go to Bible college uh, currently, and, um, you know, there in Bible college, the the, the teachers and the instructors um, are very upfront, okay, about uh, issues in, in the books that maybe not, don't align doctrinally with, um, the stand that our church takes, but the rest of the book is good. Eat the meat, spit out the bones. That's a good philosophy to live by. Eat the meat, spit out the bones. And there is a ton of good meat in this book. Oh man, a ton of good meat in this book. And it's really good. Um, so I want to talk uh, for a, a few minutes about the premise of this book. Uh, and then I want to talk about what to expect and then finally give you some closing thoughts. So the premise of the this, this book and this series that we're going to be looking at is is basically an an in investigation into the biblical, historical, scientific, and cultural evidence for Adam. All right. Now remember the title of the book: Searching for Adam: Genesis and the Truth About Man's Origin. The deal with this book, and and kind of the premise that it lays out, is that Adam, as a historical figure, is paramount, absolutely paramount. Uh, to a biblical worldview. And as you'll see throughout the different chapters, there are those who profoundly disagree with that statement. Uh, of course, I think they are wrong, and we're going to address uh, those issues. Uh, but this book deals with um, why we can trust, why we can know that Adam was indeed a historical figure. There was a Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were there. They disobeyed against God, and they threw the human race, into a world of sin. All right? And from there, uh, we now know that we need a Savior. That's interesting. My, my little boys, I do not have to teach them to do, the right th or to, to do the wrong thing. I have to teach them to do the right thing. The Christian worldview has tremendous, tremendous explanatory power in that st statement I just made. It's true. Uh, I don't have to teach my kids to do wrong. They already know how to do wrong. For the time they come out, they are already doing the wrong things. Every now and then it goes the other way, but we're that way too. You know, every now and then we do something good. Even even maybe before we get saved, before we know Christ, we might do something good. But for the most part, what we do is wrong. And if we've committed one sin, we're guilty of the whole law. That's what the Bible says. So uh, the fact of the matter is that we don't have to be taught how to sin. We know how to do that. And why is that? Why is that? We need to know why that is. Well, it, it's not because God created us that way, right? It's not because he created us to do wrong. God didn't create us to do wrong. In the beginning, God created us to be perfect. I mean, not perfect in the sense that God is perfect, but perfect in the sense that we didn't know what sin was and were sinless in the beginning. However, God gave us a choice because he loved us. 
He gave us a choice, and we messed it up. And that's the bottom line, and that is what this teaches, okay? Um, that's what the Bible teaches. That's what this book aims to teach and looks at it from a bunch of different angles. And so I'm really excited about that. So, um, of course, we're going to read some things from the book um, as we go throughout, and I'm going to comment on it and um, and to kind of give you some perspective. So uh, here is one of the main reasons for this um this book. The author quotes, in 2013, editors Matthew Barrett and Ardell B. Kennedy published the Zondervan Debate Book, Four Views on the Historical Adam. All six contributors are professing evangelicals who claim to believe in inerrancy. Dennis Lamoureux believes Adam is a myth, and Gregory Boyd is open to that possibility. John Walton, C. John Collins, and Philip Ryken hold to a historical Adam, but have different views about how many of the details of Genesis 1 through 3 are literally true. William Barrick argues for the literal truth of how Adam and Eve were created and fell, and is the only young earth creationist among the six. So this uh, statement, this paragraph here, kind of sets up uh, the author's reasoning for even um, endeavoring to compile this book and start to put put this book together. Um, it has become apparent in recent days that within the church there are many, many, many different views um, concerning Adam. There are many views concerning Adam. And when you just read the Bible, when you take it at face value, of course this is the argument I'll make for young earth creation too, but when you take of the Bible, and you read it at face value, it sure seems to me that Adam was a historical person. It sure seems that way to me, all right? Um, even back through the genealogies which trace Jesus back to Adam. I mean, it, it just, there's no reason for these connections and for these things if there was not historical Adam. Um, I completely hold to the fact that there's no reason for salvation if there was not historical Adam. And we're going to get into that. We're going to get into that. But uh, the point is that within the church, there are some differing views. And uh, the question is, are they right? I mean, when you go to a church, can you trust what you're being taught? Are you being taught the Bible? Um, are you being taught um, specific um, biased scientific interpretations over top of what we know about the Bible? I mean, do we just get to say that we believe the Bible, but then um, wherever naturalistic science contradicts, we have to trust that instead? Um, well, if that's the hermeneutic, well, then I question how we believe in a virgin birth. I question how we believe in the resurrection of the dead. I question how we believe in um, the many miracles that Jesus did, which obviously divide um, many of his miracles, defied the laws of, of, of nature. All right. Um, you know, how believable, you know, how far do we want to take this thing? You know, do we trust God? Do we trust Jesus for what he said? Can we trust the whole book or do we just trust the parts that we like? Do we just trust the parts that we have to trust in for salvation um, and then forget about the rest? All right, so these are valid questions. Um, we're obviously here, all right? We're here in the universe. I don't think any of us disagree with that. Um, we believe that uh, all, in, all, in all cases, all of these people believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. So God raised Jesus from the dead. We're obviously here in the universe. Um, are we to believe that, that God can raise Jesus from the dead, but God cannot create the universe in the way that the Bible seems to indicate that he did it? 
You know, that's a question. Um, I have people tell me all the time that they could just cannot believe in young earth creation because um, there's just no reason why God would have created in, in six days or, or just the scientific evidence is just so good for these long ages and everything like that. And I'm just like, well, well hang on a minute. And I've even had them to say that, that we're limiting God. Um we're limiting God. We we we're not giving God the, the the proper glory. But how is that? How is that true? To me, it gives God more glory to think that He can create a beautiful world in six days. Man, I mean, He doesn't need billions of years. Uh, Thirteen point eight specifically billions. You know, billion years of what I would certainly classify to be disease, um, suffering. Obviously, if if the, if the billions of years are true, um, then we've got a big fossil record problem. Of course, death before sin, and 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 again, that's a position that is widely debated. But I, I mean, I, I'm I'm comfortable planting my flag there. I mean, there, there's a theological issue. I, I really believe um, with accepting that because Genesis um, one, I believe it's twenty nine through thirty one, somewhere in there. Don't quote me there, but in Genesis one deals with the fact that animals um, were most definitely and human beings were definitely um, vegetarian before the fall. I mean, that's I mean, that's elementary. That is very, very much so the case based on what we find written in the Word of God. All right. Um, we were vegetarian before the fall. After the flood, we were given the ability, told we could eat meat. Okay. Um, that That's basic Bible teaching right there. And I'm just not sure how we can reconcile that with millions of years. Um so anyway, uh, you know what? So what do we what do we take? You know what do we do? We say okay, well, you know maybe naturalistic science is right in everything else, but now they're they're wrong in evolution. Okay, well, so there's something where we have to adjust our view a little bit. You know, so I, here's what I wonder. I just wonder. I mean, at what point do we just take God at His word? Okay, and I'm not talking about. By the way, I'm not talking about at what point do we take God at our specific interpretation of His Word. Um, I'm not interested in what could the text mean. I'm not interested. I could care less what the text, uh, what the text could mean. I want to know what does the text mean. What did God really say? All right. I'm not interested in Genesis three. Satan said, "Well, yay, hath God said right?" I mean, that that's the thing. You know, we're not questioning God here. I'm not willing to question God here. And I'm not talking about my interpretation. I'm talking about if you simply have a consistent hermeneutic throughout the Bible, if you use the same hermeneutic for Genesis 1 through 11 as you use for the rest of the Bible, I don't see how you can end up at anything differently uh, than the way a recent creationist believes. And that recent creation is going to involve a historical Adam. So at what point do we stop taking God at his word and and start up again? All right, that, that's the question I have. So um, the reason for this work is pretty evident. I mean, there is definitely some different views in the church, um, and, and this is very important, something that needs to be addressed. So uh, the editor, of course, Dr. Mortensen, here's what he asks. He says, so uh, many Christians are asking lots of questions. Did Adam exist in history, or is he a myth? Was he created supernaturally from literal dust, or did he evolve from an ape-like creature? Was he the first human, or did God select him out of a group of early Homo sapiens? Did he come into existence on the sixth literal day of history, about 6,000 years ago, as a literal interpretation of Genesis 1-11 through 11 would indicate? Or was that event tens of hundreds of thousands of years ago, and 13.8 billion years after the Big Bang?
If we believe the Bible, do we have to stick our head in the sand and deny science? And does it matter anyway, as long as we believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? Are these just interesting questions that curious minds with too much free time think about? What is the truth about man's origins? You know, um, these are some really good rhetorical questions. Uh, some rhetorical questions that I believe just about anybody would like to have answered. And uh, and that's what this book does. It really does. It goes through and answers those questions. And so th- that's what we're going to be, uh, that's what we're going to be dealing with. Can we be confident? You know, I specifically like that. Um, do we just stick our head in the sand and deny science? Um, I can't tell you how many times I've been called a pseudoscientist or a science denier or something like that because I don't accept the fact. You know, it's, it's not even evolution. That's what's really funny. It's not, it's not always that I'm called that because I don't accept evolution. A lot of times it's called that because I don't accept the Big Bang. But there's problems with the Big Bang. I mean, the, the Big Bang... While it does have explanatory power, the Big Bang is not a perfect model. Um, somebody who thinks it is a perfect model is just not informed, all right? The, the Big Bang is not a perfect model. So, um, you know, that's where that's where the things uh, really come to a head. Um, do we deny science? Of course not. I think real science is on our side. Um, I don't think it's pseudoscience at all. So uh, we're going to talk about that. I'm not going to not going to go into all that right now, but we're going to talk about that over the course of um, over the course of this series um, concerning the scientific enterprise. Dr. Mortensen says young Earth creationists love science, and we use the fruits of it all the time in our daily lives. What young Earth creationists oppose? Now this is important. What young Earth creationists oppose are the naturalistic, uniformitarian, philosophical worldview assumptions that are controlling science today and are disguised as objective science. Those atheistic assumptions are the source of the evolutionary interpretations of the scientific evidence from astronomy, geology, and biology. Um, You know, that's a hard saying, but I agree with it. I I really do. Um, Those uniformitarian uh, assumptions are most certainly controlling science today. And the fact of the matter is that this is mostly a philosophical thing. It really is. Now, we're getting ready to read uh, here in just a minute about how Dr. Mortensen distinguishes um, different branches of science. And so we're going to talk about that and and, and my disagreements with that. But before I get there, I just want to say that... um, that uh, I agree, his natural the naturalistic assumptions that are fueling uh, the scientific enterprise today have most definitely permeated the church, in my opinion. And um, while I do not believe um, that these are salvation issues at all, um, I-, I don't believe that at all, not for one second. Um, I-, I do wonder, I do wonder for future generations um, how how they are going to see our treatment of the Word of God. In other words, I just wonder at what point it might become obvious to somebody that we should take God at His Word, and they look back on these days um, of such supposed enlightenment and reason and think, what have they done with the Word of God? I just wonder. I just wonder if some of our future generations are going to... um, are going to be thinking that certainly we're going to find out judgment day um most certainly uh but you know you know what at what point do we take god at his word i keep asking that but it's true i just want you to reflect on that that's the point this whole time i want you to be reflecting on that during this series at what point do we just take god at his word and stop having to write books about this right and just get on with with witnessing and get on with uh giving out uh the gospel to the lost starting with creation 
and uh, and and really just believing that we can trust our Bible. When do we get there? All right. Now, Dr. Mortensen distinguishes between what he calls origin science and operation science. Um, now, I'm going to tell you up front. I disagree with this assessment a little bit. Um, a little bit. I'm not, he's not the only one to make this assessment, obviously. Um, I've heard um, much of the Young Earth Creationist crew talks about this, but not only Young Earth Creationists, um, many of the um, day-age uh, creationists talk in these terms. Um, I think Norm Geisler was the one actually who came up with this first, um, distinguishing uh, origin science versus operation science or... Um, you know, historical science versus operational science, whatever, however you want to call it. I've heard it called um, empirical science versus forensic science. Um, many mainstream scientists deny that these things exist. In other words, the way they see it, all science is empirical science uh, to a degree, all right? Um, and so it's all observable. It's just some things you have to extrapolate um, into the past, and, and, of course, I don't necessarily agree with that assessment either. Um, I believe the differences of a different nature. So let me read for you what Dr. Mortensen says, um, and we'll go from there. So he says about operation science. Um, operation science is what we normally think of when we hear the word science. It uses what is often called the scientific method, which can be defined this way. The use of observable, repeatable experiments in a controlled environment, e.g. a lab, to understand how things operate or function in the present physical universe in order to find cures for disease, produce a new technology, or put a man on the moon, put a cell phone in everyone's pocket, etc. I agree. That's what he calls operation science. Origin science, he says, is concerned with looking at evidence that exists in the present to reconstruct a history of the past. It can be defined this way. The use of reliable eyewitness testimony, if anybody is, if any is available, and observable evidence to determine the past, unobservable, and repeatable events, which produce the observable evidence we see in the present. Now, <clears throat> um, I do agree with his assessment there. Um, however, however, um, I tend not to talk in those terms. I tend to frame it to be the difference between science and philosophy. Um, there are good experiments. All experiments are performed in the present. Okay? All experiments are performed in the present. So, um, in a way, in a way, um, historical science or origin science or forensic science, however you want to call it, um, it still has to use some of the some of those elements of empirical science in order for it um, to work. So uh, evolutionists, okay, tend to say that this distinction uh, only exists in creationist circles. Now, I don't I certainly like to compromise, all right? I, I, and I'm not saying we should compromise, but at some point we need to um, talk to the scientists where they are and see if we can find a little bit of common ground um, in the sense that we can make some headway in the conversation, okay? I realize there's no neutral ground between Christians and non-Christians. Jesus said you're either with me or you're against me. I understand that. But what I'm saying here is, is I tend to frame this, well, I suppose you could frame it, origin science versus um, operation science, and that's certainly how this book approaches it. I tend to frame it as a difference between science and philosophy, 
science and philosophy. Um, because I've heard it said many, many times, and I've said it myself, that you're not going to prove God using science. You cannot prove creation or evolution using science. As in terms of origins goes. You cannot you, you just cannot prove those things using science. You can take uh, what we know about today and about the past and you know do some good experiments and things and and see which one fits which situation. but ultimately we're talking about events that happened in the past. The only way to really know what happened is to have an eyewitness account and I believe the Bible gives us that all right but but you're not going to prove uh, those things using science. Uh, so therefore those are philosophical claims and assumptions that we use science to do testing on to see if we could possibly be right, to see which one better fits the data. And I did write about that on my uh, blog, and I will include a link to that in the show notes here. But uh, the question I asked in that blog was, you know, are origins a question of science or philosophy? And um, in that post, I, I, I take quite a bit of time to distinguish between the differences of the two, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that right now. Uh, but I do tend to um, make that statement instead because I really do believe uh, that evolution, for example, is a philosophy issue, not a science issue. The philosophy of evolutionism was established um, before Darwin ever found finches on the Galapagos. I promise, all right? Um I promise. And so once the once the actual philosophy of it uh, caught on in a tangible way, um, boy, things really took off. All right, but but I want you to know that 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 it started with philosophy. Um, it it started with philosophy. We find philosophers in the Bible who believed along the lines, not all the scientific details, um, but who believed along the lines um, of, of what Darwin eventually came along and taught, that we're, that we're just all a result of just time, chance, and natural processes just coming about. There, there is no God. I mean, goodness gracious, there's plenty of people in the Bible who believe there wasn't a God. Plenty of them. Uh, Paul dealt with them in Acts 17, all right, the atheists and the pantheists of their day, all right? Uh, some of them believe we were all God. Some of them believe there was no God, all right? So um, most definitely these philosophical worldviews have been around um, even much longer than the scientific method itself. So um, that's the distinction in my mind. In my mind, the distinction is between philosophy and science. And I don't think an evolutionary philosophy works. I just don't think it does. I think you've got huge problems, especially when you start bringing science into it. I don't see any way you get uh, logic. I don't see how you get the uniformity of nature. I don't see how you get morality. I don't see how you get any of that on an atheist worldview. It, to, to me, it, it just it's not there. It doesn't have the philosophical weight. Um, you're you're just you're in a life of contradiction when you uh, take some of those assumptions because you have to throw truth out, you have to throw moral law out, you have to just throw everything out, all right? Um, many of the values and standards that unbelievers live by are borrowed from the Christian worldview. That's just the bottom line. Read Frank Turek's Stealing from God Sometime. That's a really, really good book uh, that highlights that. Um, read The Ultimate Proof of Creation, Um by Dr. Jason Lyle. That's a really, really good book that highlights that. So, um, you know, I think it's a philosophy versus science issue more than it is the kind of sciences. Um, although, 
you know, you could make an argument there. And the author makes a good point here. He says, now a scientist's religious or philosophical worldview has little, if any, influence on his research in the realm of Operation Science. Now, that is true. If you are going to make an assumption, um, or or rather the assertion, that there is operation versus um, historical science, um, you would be almost forced to agree that while the philosophical worldview has very little to do with the empirical science um, or the operation science that you do uh, with your hands, um, the worldview is going to come into play in a pretty big way with the origin science, and he characterizes that by saying this, in contrast, worldview has a tremendous influence in origin sciences that focuses on reconstructing the past history of the creation, and in particular, the history and origin of man. This is so because the Bible very specifically speaks to these questions and relates them to the existence, character, and activities of the Creator. What a person believes about God, His Word, and His relation to the creation will have a significant effect on his interpretation of the physical evidence. A person's view of the origin of man will profoundly affect his view of the purpose and meaning of life, his moral values, his perspective on life after death, how he views other people, and almost every other aspect of life. Now, that's almost undeniable. If you are going to make that distinction, then most certainly you would have to agree that philosophically speaking, uh, the science that you do to construct uh, what you think you know or what we think we can find out from the past is most certainly going to be affected um, by the conclusions that we would like to see. I think that's a human propensity. I think a lot of people think they're open to new evidence when in reality they're not. They might be open to new scientific evidence, but they're not willing to admit that their philosophical bias and their philosophical assumption will not let them get past that. All right? Um, so... I think that's a problem. Um, and the thing is, it's not, the problem is not having a bias. The problem is admitting it. Everybody has a bias. I mean, it, everybody has a little bit of confirmation bias when they're doing research and when they're, uh, you know, thinking about the world. I mean, that, that's just the bottom line. Everybody, to a certain degree, believes certain things that they would like to see the evidence show. Um, and it's not always that way, but in many cases it is. So um, it, it's most certainly plausible to, to think that while philosophy might not affect the science that um, allows us to do experiments uh, about the current world as it is today, it most certainly is going to affect uh, any kind of science that we try to uh, embark on that is going to deal with matters of Origins. Now, the author documents a very interesting quote here from Ernst Meyer. Um, he is a uh, deceased professor of biology um, at Harvard. And um, interestingly, he kind of goes along with Dr. Mortensen's um, assessment of these things. Here, here's what he says in, his, um, in one of his seminal works. He says, Evolution is a historical process that cannot be proven by the same arguments and methods by which purely physical and functional phenomena can be documented. In a lecture for scientists, he put it this way. For example, Darwin introduced historicity into science. Evolutionary biology, in contrast with physics and chemistry, is a historical science. The evolutionist attempts to explain events and processes that have already taken place. So, 
Here already we do see that even though many today believe that only Christians make these distinctions, uh, most certainly evolutionists of days gone by have done so as well. And so um, while uh, that's why I say I disagree and agree, um, I agree with his um, assessment of the differences between these two forms of science. Um, I just typically don't speak in those terms. I tend to speak in terms myself of philosophy uh, versus science. Uh, so Dr. Mortensen continues on here. In the question of origins, both creation and evolution are in the realm of origin science not operation science. Theistic evolution, progressive creation, young earth creation, neo-Darwinian evolution, and evolution by punctuated equilibrium are all stories about the past trying to explain the evidence that we see in the present. The difference is that young earth creationists fully trust the eyewitness testimony of the creator in Genesis 1 through 11, whereas others reject some or all of that testimony. As will be discussed more in this last chapter, the controversy is not between science and the Bible, but between the worldviews being used to interpret the scientific evidence and the Bible. So um, that's where we find ourselves. Now, again, Again, I know that there are many groups of people, and some may even be listening, who do not agree with the assessment that only young earth creationists trust the Genesis 1 through 11 account. I believe many um, uh, day age, for instance, um, believing Christians would tend to say that they do trust the Genesis 1 through 11 account, and there's just nothing in the text that, that warrants. Um, the young creation. And again, um, I, of course, would tend to disagree with that. I believe there are um, plenty evidences, even outside of Genesis 1 through 11, which teach uh, from the Bible that it is a young uh, creation. Obviously, um, no denying that from, from my perspective. I completely believe that. Um, but again, uh, that's not the battle we're fighting necessarily uh, today, and we're going to talk about that, I'm sure, over the course of this particular series as we look at the idea of a historical Adam. Now, Carl Giberson of the Biologos Foundation claims young earth creationists reject science, but who is misusing the Bible and falsely misinterpreting the science? It is not those who take Genesis 1 through 11 as literal history who are rejecting science, failing to take the Bible seriously, and making increasingly strange claims about the world. Rather, it is secular evolutionists, old earth creationists, and theistic evolutionists who are rejecting or misinterpreting scientific evidence and inventing absurd, just-so myths about how humans and the rest of creation came into existence as they ignore or misinterpret the Bible's teaching as other authors in this book show, and thereby undermining the gospel of redemption. Now, um, honestly, this is a difficulty. Remember, I, I mentioned earlier, intellectual honesty. Uh, this is most certainly a difficulty for those who hold to different positions of the Bible, and I've heard some pretty prominent um, leaders in um, what I would call the day-age movement even uh, admit this. Um, without the clear teaching of, of, of Genesis taken into account, um, and most certainly you can't, you, you can't look at where Jesus says that they were made male and female from the beginning and figure this out, um, there are some issues as to where the literal Adam and Eve, even though they believe in a literal Adam and Eve, there are some issues as to where they're placed in the timeline. When did they show up? 
And, of course, uh, they write about the genealogies, honestly, as if they are uh, meaningless for coming up with, with, with accurate dates. And I don't believe that's true either. Um, and we're going to see some of that as we go through this series. But um, the genealogies are certainly not meaningless um, when it comes to dates. I believe we absolutely can get uh, some pretty good dating estimates um, taking into account the different genealogies throughout the Bible. Um, and so the issue is, where do you put Adam? Uh, you know, Even if we do believe that he's a literal Adam, that's fine, but where do we put him in the history of the world? And that has changed over the years. Um Dr. Hugh Ross, I have respect for the man, but he has changed his position on Adam many, many times over, um, depending on what the current secular, uh, secular scientists, uh, you know, were saying about the origin of man. All right. So, um, you know, the story has to change a little bit. Well, according to the Bible story, according to what Jesus said, they were made male and female from the beginning. All right. God formed the world to be inhabited. There was no need. Uh, this world was put in place for a very specific reason, for human life. It's fine-tuned for human life. And um, that was the purpose for it. And I don't think it's a purpose that took 14 billion years to accomplish. Um, I think it was accomplished in six days, around 6,000 years ago. And that's just where I'm going to plant my flag, um, because I believe it makes the most sense of the biblical data Personally, I personally believe that. Here's what we're up against. A challenge uh, from Bible scholar Kenton Sparks. Here's what he says. From where we stand now, at the dawn of the 21st century, in a time when we sequenced the Neanderthal genome and traced out in the DNA our shared genetic heritage with primates and other mammals, it is no longer possible for informed readers to interpret the book of Genesis as straightforward history. There was no Edenic garden, nor trees of life and knowledge, nor a serpent that spoke, nor a worldwide flood in which all living things, save those on a giant boat, were killed by God. Whatever the first chapters of Genesis offer, there is one thing that they certainly do not offer, namely a literal account of events that actually happened prior to and during the early history of humanity. If Genesis is the word of God, as I and other Christians believe, then we must try to understand how God speaks through a narrative that is no longer the literal history that our Christian forebears often assumed it to be. And here's the author's reply. The authors of this book accept his challenge and will show that it is not only uh, is belief in a literal Adam and fall consistent with historic Christian orthodoxy and sound biblical exegesis, but it is also powerfully confirmed by the many lines of scientific evidence, and we will also show that this belief about Adam is foundational to the gospel and to the integrity and the authority of the whole Bible. And there is where chapter 1, the introduction rather, concludes. Um, so that's the challenge. Uh, that's a pretty stark challenge. All right. I mean, uh, you know, with all due respect to brother, uh, Kenton Sparks, I mean, he, he pretty much says that we just cannot accept what the Bible says in Genesis is straightforward history, even though it's the word of God. So therefore we need to find another way of understanding it. Um, and uh, the question is if, if it can be shown, um, now I believe it. I, I believe what the Bible says about origins because I believe the Bible. Straightforward. I'm not smart enough to come up with some of these other stories and stuff that people come up with, uh, 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 you know, about how to take those first chapters. Um, 
you know, call me what you want, but, but, but I just, I'm just dumb enough to believe that we can believe it exactly how God laid it out in his word without question. And so what if, what if what we observe backs up what Genesis 1 through 11 says? What if a worldwide flood makes sense of uh, geology, right? What if um, genetics proves that we came from one male and one female? What if there is only one race? What if what we see in the Word of God is corroborated by um, astronomy? What if we find stars in our galaxy that cannot last the long ages that evolutionists demand that we have? Um, So that's my question. You know, can we begin to take God at his word if we can show that these supposedly unbelievable things are very, very believable? What if we dare to go up against the mainstream? What if we dare? And that's what many young earth creationist organizations um, have done over the years. And that's most certainly what this book attempts to do. Um, In my opinion, this book and this series are very, very important. We're talking about our origins here. Um, You know, did we come from an ape (laughs) or not? Um, You know, an ape-like ancestor, rather? I mean, did we come from that direction or no? Um, You know, did, did we evolve from pond scum? I mean, are we really nothing more than stardust when it comes down to it? Or are we made in the image of God? Is there something special about us? Um, Are we somehow a product of evolutionary chance and a creation of God? I I don't see it. I I don't think so. Um, I certainly don't don't see how how that's possible. And so we're going to talk about that as we go through this book. I want to give you a brief overview of the chapters. I'm just going to tell you what to expect here, and then uh, we're going to close out for this week, all right? So obviously, we just dealt with the introduction, um, and I titled this this lesson is Adam, the Real Deal. And of course, it's an introduction to the biblical origin of humanity series, all right? So next week, we're going to begin in chapter one. We're going to deal with Adam according to the Old Testament. What do the Old Testament writers have to say about Adam? Did they treat Adam as if he was a historical figure? Or was he just, um, you know, somebody who was stood up to act as a prop um, for original sin? You know, what was the deal there? All right, the next uh, week we're going to talk about uh, Adam, the New Testament, and the church. And that's going to be chapters 2 and 3 of the book we're going to look at. Adam, the New Testament, and the church. Um what did Jesus have to say about Adam? What about the rest of the New Testament writers? Uh, what about the church fathers after that? Um, did they believe in a literal historical Adam and a real fall in the Garden of Eden? Um, what, what's their position? Next, we're going to ask, where did we lose Adam uh, in chapter 4? What, where, you know, where did Adam go? This book says we're searching for him. Well, where did he go? Where did we lose him at? Uh, why did we lose him? Then we're going to look at placing Adam in humanity's history. I'm really excited for that week. That's chapter 5, placing Adam in humanity's history. Then chapter 6 uh, deals with John Walton's book, The Lost World of Adam and Eve. Um, and so we're going to be asking this, does John Walton get Genesis right? Does John Walton get Genesis right? Now, many who accept evolutionary interpretations of the Bible use Walton's work. So it's very important to see whether he has a consistent hermeneutic, whether his work um, 
is is good enough, whether it makes sense. Okay, so we're going to critique some of his work there. Did John Walton get Genesis right? Chapter 7, we're asking, um, who was Adam and who are we? That's going to be a good chapter. Um, chapter um, 8 and 9 is going to deal with human ancestry, the fossil evidence. The fossil evidence of human ancestry. That's going to be really, really good. Chapter 10 deals with human ancestry, genetics, and a recent creation. Uh, that chapter is written by Dr. Jeffrey Tompkins um, from the Institute for Creation Research and Dr. Nathaniel Jensen uh, from Answers in Genesis, who just released a book called Replacing Darwin. And, um, and their chapter is honestly one of my favorite in the book, talking about the mitochondrial DNA and the genetic evidence. It's really, really powerful because the mainstream says that genetics is conclusive on evolution. Um, but doctors Jensen and Tompkins say, not so, not so. And they show us how. And I really appreciate this chapter because it gives us a really good basis for science. And we're going to see that um, we're going to see that when we get to it, okay? But it's really interesting to see how few of the experiments that are done actually could confirm what we know about creation or evolution, um, depending on the type of experiment they are. And the ones that are head-to-head, the ones that we do head-to-head, always match uh, the creationist data spot on. So I'm really excited to get into that and look at some of the science behind that. All right, then, chapters 11 and 12, we're looking at the anatomy of the fearfully and wonderfully made. Oh boy, yeah, it's going to be good. Uh, dealing with the um, engineering, that, that particular chapter is written by an engineer. And so we're going to see how our anatomy is unique and different. Um, so as to, to allude to the fact that we could not have evolved from an ape-like ancestor, there's just too much difference. We're made too much differently. Indeed, as the Bible says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Then we're looking at chapter 13, Darwin and favored races, the loss of humanity in our culture. So did, uh, did Darwinism, did evolutionism influence uh, some of humanity's most vicious and cruelest um, reigns and regimes? I think it did. I think it did. And there are many who deny that. Well, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at some of that evidence and see how... Uh, Darwin was right when he said the preservation of um, favored races uh, and the struggle for life. Man, he was right. And, um, and many people have latched onto that in the past and used that to do some seriously wicked things. And so we're going to take a look at that. Um, then chapters 14 and 15 deal with our shared history. Who was ancient man? Uh, were we smart? Were we dumb? Uh, you know, who, you know, the evolutionary story is that we've progressed over millions of years. And of course, we are the best we've ever been today. We're the brightest we've ever been today. Um, but the data seems to allude to something different. We're going to start with the Bible and then look at some, uh, some, some extra biblical things as well and talk about our shared history. Who was ancient man? Were we brilliant or were we brute, right? And then finally, chapter 16 is a historical Adam and the authority of Scripture. And the way I line that out is going to be done over 13 weeks. Of course, this is week one. So again, this is the first in this series, and we're going to carry it through uh, through 13 weeks. So it's going to be exciting. It's going to be fun. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Now, I just want to give you a few thoughts before we end up for today. And uh, and next week, then, we're going to get into Adam according to the Old Testament. I'm really excited about that. It's going to be fun. Um, 
but let me give you some thoughts again on intellectual honesty and um and also some thoughts concerning this this book um as we go through it do keep in mind that i don't necessarily endorse everything um that we'll read or, or cover by the author. In other words, some of the things that are said, um, I, I might read them because they are in the book and, and I need to address them, but I may not necessarily agree um, with his assessment of things. And whenever there are points of disagreement, I will most certainly try to point that out. Um, again, I, I believe claims should be evaluated on their own merit. I don't think we should accept anything uh, as a blanket just because one person or one book or one organization says it. Um, we need to go by what the Bible says and see if we can make sense of it. And that's all that matters. So um, there are going to be things that I disagree with. And as I do, I'll try to point those out. Um, sometimes the language in this debate, the, the young earth debate versus old earth or, or theistic evolution, however you want to do it, um, can be too harsh. The language in this debate can be too harsh. I'm, I'm just going to come right out and say it. And we need to be very careful about that and very respectful of our other Christian brothers and sisters. You may believe they're compromising. I may believe they're compromising. Um, but the bottom line is that they are made in the image of God and they deserve respect. They may not have um, the understanding of the Bible that I believe that they should or that you believe that they should. We may not have the understanding that they believe that we should. All right. Um, I'm sure we are seen as um, narrow-minded to some of these people. And, of course, to to us, um, they seem too open-minded. All right. So um, it's just... Everybody has their opinion. Only God is right. Only the Bible is right. And it's not a question of interpretation of what good things mean. It's what do things mean. And so we need to do this in a respectful way um, of our brethren and, of course, have this debate in a way that is honoring to Christ. And I'm certainly going to try to have that demeanor as we go throughout this book while standing firm on the position. As I mentioned earlier, we should also admit when our models have difficulty, when the evolutionary model makes sense, uh, sometimes that <laughs> sometimes that happens. I mean, it's rare. It's very rare. There might be a piece of data where the evolutionary model explains it a little better, um, or at least uh, at its surface makes more sense. And so uh, I don't think that that happens very often. But when it does, we need to acknowledge that. We need to learn how to work through those things, and we need to be honest about it. And um, remember, I, 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 one of my earliest lessons was why I am a creationist. I'm a creationist because the Bible says so. Not because of science, not because of uh, anything else, just because the Word of God tells me that I ought to be a creationist. So that's what I am, and that's the bottom line. We must remember, finally, that our Scripture is the ultimate authority. This fight is not one of salvation. You can be saved and believe in long ages. You can be saved and believe in evolution. You can be saved and believe a lot of things. This fight is one of ultimate authority. God's Word or man's Word? Who gets to say who gets to say, is the Bible um, greater than what some call natural theology in its revelation? I believe it is, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, but that's the key. What is the ultimate authority in our lives? And I believe it should be Scripture. And so as we go through this book, we are going to find where Scripture lays down the law and find how to make the best sense of it we possibly can using science, using history, um, using information about the culture. And I believe we can do that in a God-glorifying and a God-honoring way um, that is going to make sense ultimately of what God's Word 
has to say. So let's pray, and we will be done for this week, and we'll see you next week here on the Creation Academy. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be able to study this book, Lord, to be able to come together um, for these next few weeks and go through this work and find out, Lord, how science, how culture, how history, uh, how everything about the world around us confirms and indeed honors and glorifies you and your word. We thank you, Lord, um, for giving us a good week so far. Pray that you would uh, give us a good week until next time we get together and uh, help us to, as we seek to glorify, honor you, and uh, share you with others. Help us to be bold in our proclamation. Help us to stand on the truth and authority of your word, and help us to be graceful, most of all, and respectful towards those who are without you. We love you, Father, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, and we will see you guys next week right here on the Creation Academy. Bye-bye.